Well, I invite your attention to the public reading of the Word of God found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. And now, lest he stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. One of the things that the uh, elders do before every service is to pray for you. Because we know that you come uh, on any given Sunday with concerns and things that trouble your heart. Uh, and even as Ronnie just prayed, there are things that distress us. It's life under the sun. Uh, all the things that uh, we have to deal with in the world. Uh, think about your own life. And, uh, I think about mine the past week, all the things that you struggled with. Uh, perhaps an aging parent or a dying parent. Uh, uh, perhaps your business or your concern for your children. And you bring those cares here and we pray that uh, God would minister to each of us in the Word. And beyond just our own uh, cares within the immediate uh, circle of our family and work and life, there's uh, the broader scope of all the things that we see going in the world that might distress us. Um, I brought a copy of uh, the uh, Wall Street Journal from just this past Friday. So consider some of the things in the, the top of the news here. Um, U.S. inflation hits its highest rate in more than six years in June, eating away at modest wage gains. Activist investors are launching campaigns to pressure companies at record pace. FBI agent and lawmakers clash at a House hearing. Trump royals NATO. And then there's the last of this uh, little column of headlines. Astronomers for the first time traced a burst of powerful cosmic particles called neutrinos to a galaxy-destroying black hole. And so I go to the, uh, uh, the first paragraph of that story. <clears throat> Astronomers uh, for the first time traced a burst of powerful cosmic particles to a black hole firing like a ray gun aimed at Earth. 
And so uh, we come here with all sorts of things that distress us uh, in our personal lives and as we look at the world around us. And I think that a passage like this in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verses 22 to 24 can help us put these things in perspective. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preacher of a generation ago in England, uh, preached a series uh, on the gospel found in Genesis. And he uh, said in his sermon on this passage uh, that there are two basic questions we all should be asking. First, why are things the way they are? And second, how can they be put right? And then he said this little paragraph in Genesis gives us a perfect picture of modern people and the modern world. So it's just not capturing uh, Adam and Eve thousands of years ago, but it's a picture of life today under the sun. There you are, he said, alone, isolated, in a wilderness of existence at the mercy of all sorts of dangers, not knowing what to do, feeling fearful, frustrated, and confused. Life is not what you thought it would be. But there you are. You try and you want to get to some place of rest. Back to paradise if it were possible. But all attempts fail and fall short. Well, let's think about this little paragraph together and see if we can find some answers to these two questions. And so where do we start? Well, I think it's helpful to start seeing this paragraph as part of a story. It's not a fable. It's true, but it's a story. And so it's helpful to think about it and understand it as we would understand any story. We need to think about the setting, the characters, the plot, the problem, and the resolution. And also, it's helpful to think of this passage as a scene in a larger story. So first, the setting. When and where does this story take place? Well, it takes place in Eden, specifically the garden that God planted in Eden. And if you have your Bibles open to Genesis 3, back up one chapter to Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9. It says, God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there He put the man whom He had formed And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
Then drop down a few verses to verses 15 to 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Then in uh, Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 25, we read that Adam was alone, that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and took from Adam a rib and formed the woman and gave her to the man to be his helper. Uh, just an aside, that's not a pejorative term, helper, because God has called our helper, uh, and what a great uh, title that is, bestowed on God, but also upon uh, Adam's wife. Notice in verse 25, the innocence of the man and the woman characterized as being naked and not ashamed. Well, let's pause here and observe a few things. To this point, God is the one taking all the action. He made the heavens and the earth. He planted a garden in Eden. He put the man in the garden. He gave the rules of the garden. And He created Eve for Adam. Observe also that the story focuses on two prominent trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The man and the woman have access to both trees, but one is forbidden to them. One last observation, and you don't get this in the English translation, but in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Greek word used for garden is the word from which we get our English word, paradise. That's where the story of man begins, in the paradise of God. Well, next notice the time frame of our text this morning. It comes at the end of the story of the fall of man. It's the end of Act One in the grand story of world history as told from Genesis to Revelation. I found it helpful in my own study of this passage really to think of the Bible as a three-act play. Okay? Act One with three scenes. Scene one is the first chapter of Genesis. It's the creation of the universe and the earth and all that is in them. Scene two is Genesis chapter two, God putting the man and the woman in the garden and all is well. Then scene three is Genesis three and the fall of man. In this scene, the serpent tempted the woman. She ate of the 
fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then she gave some to her husband, and he ate the forbidden fruit as well. The Lord then came down from heaven, declared judgment on the serpent, the man, and the woman, but also promised a future serpent crusher to come from the offspring of the woman. And all of this sets uh, uh, the scene for the last uh, paragraph of Genesis 3. And now note the characters left on the stage. It's God and Adam and Eve. Notice the woman has a name now. From Genesis chapter 3, verse 20, Adam named her Eve because she is the mother of all living. Again, this is an aside, but Dr. Bruce Walkey observes in that little passage that Adam believes God's promise of a serpent crusher. And he believes the promise of God that it will come from the line of the offspring of Eve. And then God clothes the man and the woman. And Dr. Walkie says, observe the order, faith first, and then the righteous covering from God. It's really a beautiful picture of what salvation is. Faith first, and in faith then comes the covering of the righteousness of Christ. Okay. Again, that's just a little bonus point. It's not where I really want to go this morning. But there are other characters as well now. Uh, did you notice them? The cherubim. Let's think about them uh, for a moment. Uh, Their precise form is unclear as we look at other passages in the Bible. You might turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. And let's get an idea of their um, form as described in Ezekiel's vision. Ezekiel chapter 1 verse 4. I looked and I saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center of the fire looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. In appearance, their form was human, but each of them had four faces and four wings. Their legs were straight, their feet were like those of a calf and gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands. All four of them had faces and wings, and the wings of one touched the wings of another. Each one went straight ahead. They did not turn as they moved. Their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a human, and on the right side of each, Uh, the face of a lion, and on the left, the face of an ox. Each also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. 
They each had two wings spreading out upward, each wing touching that of the creature on either side, and each had two other wings covering its body. Each one went straight ahead. Wherever the spirit would go, they would go without turning as they went. The appearance of the living creatures was like burning coals of fire or like torches. Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright, and lightning flashed out of it. The creature sped back and forth like flashes of lightning. I should have asked Ronnie to come up here and help with this. <laughs> he's, he's been dealing with uh, thinking through in the first hour Daniel's vision of these four beasts and, and trying to uh, help us uh, think about that. And I would uh, uh, take the same approach that Ronnie does with the, uh, the vision of the beast. We don't take it so much literally, but see what this vision tells us about the power and the majesty of these angelic creatures. Wings, fire, lightning, representing their swift power, their faces representing their preeminence among the angelic creatures, as the lion is the king of the jungle, the ox the king of domesticated animals, the eagle the king of the air, and man having dominion over all the creation. Well, if their form isn't exactly clear, their function is more clear. They are guardians of God's throne and of the things holy on earth. Uh, you know from your own study in the Word that uh, in Exodus when uh, the craftsmen of Israel were given skill to make all the implements of worship, uh, they crafted a mercy seat. And above the mercy seat, they they crafted with skill these representations of the seraphim. And it sat on top of the mercy seat as guardians of the mercy seat. And it was there where God met with Moses, his presence between the cherubim in the tabernacle. Now you'll find that in Exodus 25, verses 18 to 22. And you know as well that, um, uh, again, the skilled workers of Israel uh, created a uh, grand uh, curtain, this, this large curtain that would hang uh, between uh, the people and the Holy of Holies. Would not surprise you, would it, to know that uh, embroidered into this grand veil were representations of the cherubim. You'll find that in Ezekiel, or excuse me, Exodus 26, verse 31, which says, And you shall make a veil of purple and blue and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked in it. Again, I think it's a representation that man was not 
permitted except by regulation from God to go past the, the, uh, the veil into the Holy of Holies. In time, uh, the high priest could, uh, provided he take a sacrifice for himself, but you just couldn't stroll into the Holy of Holies. and uh, You had this temple uh, veil uh, to guard it, and these grand uh, seraphim, these powerful angelic creatures there to to brace you so that you would not just stroll in. Well, again, as guardians of, of uh, the holy things, they also attend the presence of God. In uh, Psalm 99, verse 1, uh, the psalmist begins with this great call to worship. He says, The Lord reigns. Let the people tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. Go back to Ezekiel uh, chapter 10. And, and there again we read of the cherubim in the presence of the heavenly uh, temple of God. Ezekiel chapter 10. Uh, verses 1 to 5. Then I looked, and behold, on the expanse that was over the heads of the cherubim, there appeared above them something like a sapphire and an appearance like a throne. And he said to the man clothed in linen, Go in among the whirling wheels, Underneath the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from between the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in before my eyes. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the house when the man went in and a cloud filled the inner court. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the throne. And the house was filled with a cloud. And the cloud was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. And the sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard as far as the outer court, like the voice of God Almighty when He speaks. So these angelic creatures are not the chubby, little, childlike, docile <laughs> representations we see on little note cards or inspiring little uh, posters. Uh, no, these, these are grand, majestic, angelic creatures uh, rather to be feared than cuddled. Let me give you one other kind of aside. Uh, again, it's not the main point for today or even the, a minor point, but it's something to think about. I want you to ponder this later. Um, if you turn to Ezekiel 28, let me read for you verses 12 to 14. This is a prophecy against the king of Tyre from Ezekiel. He says, You were a model of perfection. 
full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay, so far, so good. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. Well, again, Ezekiel is a, giving a prophecy to the king of Tyre, and he might use sort of this um, hyperbole to praise a man, but ponder whether if there's not something more here. Could it be that in describing the king uh, as an angelic being behind the king, there was Satan, the real angelic power behind every nation that seeks to destroy the people of God? Was Satan a powerful cherub stationed in the garden by God to protect it? Would that explain his presence there in Genesis 3? Though he had then taken the form of a serpent. If so, then the great angelic seraphim, or protector, became the great destroyer. Well, again, you might just ponder that. But let's get back to the plot of this passage. Uh, it's uh, the sequence of events now. First, the Lord announces a problem. Verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Well, there's a problem. The problem's not for God, right? Who's the problem? For it's Adam. He's got a, a problem. What's the problem? Well, the problem is that the man and the woman know good and evil, but not in a pure and holy way like God knows good and evil. Rather, man knows good and evil in a forbidden and corrupt way. And the text says, Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. Lest he reach out his hand to that tree of life. Adam would have reached out his hand for that fruit of the tree of life. We all would have done it. Right? This is how we would have thought. I sinned. God has rendered judgment upon me. Death. But there's the tree of life, right? It's like the commercial. Where's that easy button? I'm going to pound that easy button because it's right there. 
and all my problems will be solved from death to life, just like that. We all would have hit the easy button, and Adam would have too, lest he reach out his hand Had he done that, then what? He would have lived forever. That fruit of the tree of life actually confers eternal life. Yet he would have lived forever in a fallen and corrupt state under God's judgment. So you see, eternal life is in itself not a good thing. Eternal life in a fallen state under God's judgment is not a good thing. Only eternal life in a redeemed state under God's blessing is a good thing. But sinful and fallen men still search for eternal life, a fountain of youth, ever the quest for a fountain of youth, and that apart from God, and not appreciating what it would mean to have a fountain of youth apart from God. And again, if ever a fountain youth were found, fallen man would reach out and drink from it. We'll go back to uh, this, uh, these three words, behold the man. Behold the man. The focus seems to be all on Adam and not on Eve. Why is that? That's because Adam represented the whole human race. Sin came into the world through one man. That's Romans 5.12, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's why it's essential that you and I understand and affirm and believe in one man, Adam, created uniquely by God in the image of God who fell, and that he was our representative. It's essential Christian faith to believe that. Had Adam also eaten of the tree of life as our representative, I believe he and everyone in him would have lived forever in an eternal state of sin and misery. So consider the magnitude of what's at stake here. And what's the immediate resolution of the problem? Verses 23 to 24, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden and he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. To resolve the problem of lest the man reach out his hand, God sent the man out of the garden. And notice how, verse 24, God drove the man out. These are strong words, sent and drove. It's not like I would say, uh, yesterday my wife sent me to the store to buy some bread. No. Uh, Sent here means to expel. Actually, the NIV, I think, is closer to the meaning when it says God banished the man from the garden. 
I think it's better understood in verse 24, God drove out the man. That's not a gentle moving Adam like we might move a little child along. Um, It's not what's going on there. What's going on here is much like the scene in John chapter 2 where Jesus goes in the temple and he sees the money changers and all the evil going on there and he, he, he fashions a, a scourge of cords and he drives them out. That's much more of the, of the reality of what God is doing with Adam. He's driving him out of the Garden of Eden. So picture Adam and Eve driven out Looking back at the garden, the cherubim, the flaming sword, and the tree of life. And if we were in a theater, the curtain would come down on Act One. That's how it ends, Act One. It's also the answer to the first question that Martin Lloyd-Jones asked. Why are things the way they are? Well, things are the way they are because Adam sinned and fell and God drove him out of paradise into the wilderness. And this is why you and I live in a world full of strife and frustration and bitterness and loneliness and fearfulness, illness. Every day we live this life with only brief interludes of quietness and calmness and peacefulness. Can you relate to that? Are you shaking your head? Yeah, I, I get that. But now, what of the second question? How can things be put right? Well, this passage doesn't answer that question. It ends on a cliffhanger. The curtain comes down. They're out of the garden. It's a cliffhanger. It's kind of like if you're old enough to remember uh, Dallas, the last scene of one one season, bam, who shot J.R.? And you had to wait (laughs) till the next uh, season to find the answer. Well, that's what's going on here. It's like a cliffhanger. Doesn't answer the question, but there are some hints that there is an answer. The first hint is that the man and the woman are still breathing, though God has said that on the day that you eat the forbidden fruit, you'll surely die. They're still breathing, and they're breathing for a reason. The second hint, as we have seen, is that the man and the woman are prevented from eating the tree of life. That's an act of mercy, for God had allowed them to eat of that, and they would have lived forever in a fallen state. Uh, The third hint is that there are still the promises and the gifts of God which are irrevocable. So the tree of life is not destroyed, it's only guarded. And there's the promise of the serpent crusher who will come from the offspring of the woman. So the cliffhanger ends suggesting a good ending, even a return to the garden. And that's what the rest of the Bible unfolds. Again, it's helpful for me to think about this as a three-act play. Act 2 and 3 of the Bible are all about the return of man to the garden and the tree of life. But the way back must have been perplexing to Adam and Eve. There's the tree of life that holds out all this great hope for them, but God drives them away from it. So basically, God is going to bring them 
send them back to the garden and the tree, but he's doing it in a totally unexpected and perplexing way. It made me think of this book by George MacDonald called The Princess and the Goblin. And um, If you don't read fairy tales like that, you should. They're very helpful. Well, in this story, there's a young princess called Irene, and one day she goes up to the very top of the castle and she meets her great-great-great-great-great-grandmother. So great-great, she shouldn't be alive, but she is. And the grandmother says, I'm going to give you a gift. It's this ball of silver thread. Whenever you need me, follow the silver thread. It'll take you to me because I'll be holding the other end. And so one night, Irene awakes. She's... Um, She's scared. She thinks, I'll follow this, this, this silver thread back to my grandmother. So she finds it. She can barely see it, but she can hold on to it. And she follows it out the door of her bedroom, and she thinks it's going to turn and go up the stairs, but it doesn't. It goes downstairs. It goes downstairs. It goes out the door. It goes across the backyard. It goes across the meadow. And it goes to mountain, and she's following it. Where is this taking me? It goes up the mountain. It goes into a cave. Now think about the cave like the Thai uh, soccer players. She goes into the cave alone, but she's following the silver thread. And it gets narrower and narrower, and finally it comes to a place where there's been a cave-in, and the thread goes right through the rocks into where the cave-in. And what does she do? Well, I'll turn back. She turns back. She can't find the thread. <laughs> Only when she moves forward does she have the, the, the help of the thread. But what does she do now? It goes right into these rocks. What do you do? You follow the thread and you start taking the rocks out. And you keep pressing ahead. That's the idea. So, Act 2 is like that. God's taking man back to the garden, but in a very strange way. Act 2 begins in Genesis 4 with life on the earth outside the garden, and it goes all the way to the end of Malachi. Here God begins with a few men and women of faith, but they grow into a kingdom within a kingdom, a kingdom of light within a kingdom of darkness. Along the way, there's more hints of a return to paradise. Abraham and Sarah are promised and given a son. They're promised a land. They're given a land. The Israelites go down to Egypt, but... Moses brings them back to the land. Um, there's the tabernacle and the temple later with carved imagery of a garden. And also there's provision, uh, interim provision. Proverbs 3, verses 18, God's word becomes an interim tree of life. Proverbs 3, 18, she, wisdom, is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. Then Act 3 begins with the Gospels and the birth of the serpent crusher, the Christ. Uh, this act has its own story arc with conflict and crucifixion, but it ends with resurrection and life and a reconstituted garden, complete with everything we would expect to see. God redeemed mankind and the tree of life. So if you read Revelation 22, verses 1 to 5, let me do that for you. You'll see this. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of a lamp or sun, for God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So if you, let me try to do this quickly. If you compare Revelation 22 with Genesis 3, you'll see some things. Um, The tree of life in Genesis 3 is one tree for one man, one woman. In In Revelation 22, the one tree has become an orchard of trees for the healing of the nations. And you see that there's no curse. God is not driving men out of the garden. He's now welcoming them back in, in droves. And what do you not see there in Revelation 22? Well, there is no flaming sword. What happened to it? Well, let me share this from Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, my dear friend, this is the most marvelous thing of all. The Son of God advanced against the flaming sword and it smote him. It killed him. It broke his body, and the breaking, in breaking his body, it broke itself. He advanced, I say, on the sword, and he said, Smite me, and in smiting him, it smashed itself. And now the way is open into the paradise of God, to the tree of life, to salvation, and all its blessings. What a work of grace. God didn't do it in a quick way. The serpent crusher didn't come with the first birth to Eve. Why didn't God just do it that way? Do it quickly. The Messiah comes with the first child, grows up, takes the sword into himself, and recovers paradise for all mankind. Why four, five, six thousand years of this? I finally got a just, I mean, I knew the answer, but John Owen so, put it so well in his book, Communion with God. Why this world history, he said, but for one reason, that the entire Trinity may be glorified. So you think about redemption of man, the love of the Father, the work and the sacrifice of the Son, the application of that in time by the Spirit, and so the whole Trinity is glorified in this. That's why it wasn't done the easy way. It's done the hard way that God, the trying God, might be glorified. Well, a few applications. I apologize for the time, but let me run through these quickly. First, life outside the garden for now is part of God's plan. So don't despair about your present circumstances. We live now like Adam in a place of toil and curse. That's why things are the way they are, but that's not how things will end. So have hope. There is a way back to the garden. It's in Christ. That's the answer to the second question. How can things be put right? They are put right. It's just in Him. And follow the silver thread of God's providence for your life. Though it may seem for a season to go away from the garden and not back to it. Second, take advantage of the access now offered to the garden and the tree of life. It's partial and provisional, but it is access nonetheless. Meet with God in the house of worship. 
in life walk with God in wisdom? Because it's the tree of life, the Word of God. Persevere, because in Revelation 2, verse 7, Jesus said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the fruit of the tree of life. And then in death, you'll be with Christ in paradise. As he said to the dying thief on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Ronnie and I were thinking about that before the service. You're sick, you're, you're struggling, you die, and immediately you go from this world to be with Christ in paradise. Well, let me end this morning with one final observation from Genesis 3, 22. It's these three words. God says, behold the man. So there he is, sinful man in the garden, about to be driven out into the garden and from the garden into a wilderness. It's paradise lost. And if you read John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 5, Christ, who is now lived, living in the wilderness and all of the effects of the wilderness upon him, at the very end, the scourging, the smiting, the spitting, the yanking out of his beard. He's brought out from, uh, before Pilate and everyone around him. John 19, verse 5, So Jesus came out wearing a crown of thorns and a purple robe, and Pilate said, Behold the man. Those three words. And now you have the God-man in the wilderness about to reclaim paradise for us. Behold the man. Behold your Savior. And so this morning we thought about two questions. Why are things the way they are? Just because Adam fell. How can they be put right? They are and, and can be in Christ. But there's a third question. Are things right for you? Believe upon Christ and all things will be put right for you. Believe not upon Him and nothing is put right for you. My invitation to you this morning is believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and all things will be put right. And you'll start following a thread of providence that will take you back to the garden, to paradise, to the tree of life. Amen.